Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome to class number two of Dracula. Um, and uh, yeah, created pretty pretty swank, huh? The new um, my, uh, uh, Alyssa House Thomas has designed uh, this uh, awesome new uh, 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 slideshow. We've you know I've, my slides have been. Uh, uh, you know, looking the same for like the last five years. So, uh, we thought we'd try something different. I think it's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, maybe it'll even <laughs> encourage me to go faster. Who knows? We'll see how many of my, my slides I get through tonight. Um, uh, and Jennifer, thanks for asking. Uh, uh, no, if you post something in the question box, I see it right away. Um, so I encourage you to do that, to be making observations as we go. You'll see, you'll get the swing of things as we go through. Um, but other people can't see it. It's, that's just private to me. If you want to engage in uh, online chat and be involved in like whispering in the back of the room with many of the other cool kids in the class, uh, go to the Dracula webpage, uh, the Mythgard Academy Dracula webpage, and there's a little chat window link in the bottom right hand corner of the page. You can, you can click on there and uh, uh, you'll find a bunch of other cool people from the class hanging out there uh, and uh, exchanging learned and witty remarks uh, during the class, as I understand. Um, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, okay. So that's 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 just so if you if you if if you would if you would like to be a part of that, you can do that. Um, anyway, okay. All right. Uh, a couple things here at the beginning before we launch into uh, before we launch into uh, the 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 uh, uh, if really efficient discussion in which I get through everything I plan to talk about. Um, we are... Uh, first, I have a, a, a really kind of pedestrian <laughs> announcement, but it's important and I want to make sure that everybody's aware of this. Uh, for those of you who have been joining us, um, we were notified by uh, GoToWebinar, which is, the, of course, the program which we're currently using to broadcast the class, that they're going to be changing, they're going to be ceasing to support some uh, older operating systems like... Uh, uh, Windows XP and Vista and Mountain Lion. Um, so n not something that probably most of you are using, but just in case, if you're worried, if you're using an older operating system and you're not worried what we'll do or what will happen, I just posted a link to the page where you can get more information on that to find out what you whether you would be affected and what you need to do. Uh, this is, of course, only for people who are attending the class live. All of you who are listening to and watching the recordings after the fact obviously don't need to worry about that. But for those of you who do interact live, then uh, just to be aware of that. This happens every... This is not the first time this has happened with GoToWebinar since we've done this. Um, but just to kind of keep you aware of the fact that that's occurring. So... Um, uh, just uh, so, yeah, just to make sure that you are informed about that. Two other announcements of a significantly more exciting nature. Uh, first, of course, as you will recall, the uh, elections for the the class topics uh, for what we're talking about here for the topics of our seminars. Um, this is Dracula is the second of the two uh, in the last round that were elected. We did the shaping of Middle Earth, which was awesome, and now we're doing Dras Dracula, which is also awesome. Um, but um, so the um uh the the it's just about time to elect the new one uh is uh the new ones is it probably will elect the next two uh in the next round and that round the next round of voting is uh, going to begin likely in 
April, so that will be coming up soon. For those of you who don't know how this works, this series is supported uh, through the annual fundraiser uh, of Signum University. Um, for everyone who uh, donates $25 or more uh, you know, in the annual cycle to help support Signum and to keep us going and doing what we do, um, you get voting rights to be able to contribute to the discussion of what books we get to do next. This is entirely democratically run. I don't have any direct say, I do still kind of reserve veto power in case you guys try to trap me into discussing something uh, I really, really don't want to talk about, but I've never even come close yet. You guys have been awesome. And uh, anyway, so, um, uh, but I'm excited. I mean, indeed, I'm still just sort of uh, uh, delighted by, you know, the last few classes we've done have been so great. Um, we did, of course, we're doing Dracula, we did Shaping the Middle-Earth, and before that we did Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, which was the first of the books that we've ever done in Mythgard Academy series that I'd never read in my life prior to uh, going through it with you guys uh, in that class, and it was just awesome. I mean, it's like one of the five greatest fantasy books of the 21st century, so that was great! Um, anyway, so yeah, and there's... Um, um, <laughs> Matthew Hershenroder says, "Would I veto the Chronicles of Narnia, Book One, The Magician's Nephew?" Well, Matthew, no. I would. The problem is there. I there isn't any such book. I, I don't. There's. I don't recognize the existence of any such. So, vetoing is sort of a moot point. I don't understand why you would want to start the Chronicles of Narnia at Book Six. Um, I mean, I guess if everybody wanted to start at Book Six for some reason, we could do it. But uh, I would think that would be pretty weird. You know, we should start at book one, right? Um, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, yeah. So, so we'll see. There's, there's, there's so many things that we could uh, that that we could do. The Wormora Boros that would be fun. Arthur, yeah, we could totally do something classical. Or, um, yeah, absolutely. The Aeneid, the Velospa. Sure, why not? Why not? Um, lots of things we could do. Um, Jordan is taunting me with Twilight next. You know, people have been threatening me with Twilight for years. Bring it, I say. I'll do it. I'll do, I won't spend that long on it because it's kind of dull. But that's okay. Hey, you know, whatever. Um, I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I am open. Uh, so. Again, if you want to be involved there on the Mythgard Academy pages, you'll you'll be able to see uh, the way to go about um, uh, being involved with that, and we will sort of fire that up uh, right away. Yeah, Curtis, I knew you nominated Twilight last time. I saw somebody did. I figured it was you, uh, it, even if just to be uh, just to be perverse. Um, anyway, anyway, <laughs> Dune Messiah, Jordan, see, see. <laughs> <laughs> this goes back to the Dune class where Jordan was trying to convince me that like the subsequent Dune books are really great when I really don't like them very much at all. But again, Jordan, if it gets elected, fine, fine, I'll do what it's fine. I'll do Dune Messiah if you want to. Um, anyway, okay, so that's that's one thing that's coming up soon. Another thing that's coming up soon is that they're not it's not open yet, and the web pages aren't up. But just to let you know, the summer uh, courses, the regular courses in our um, in our MA program um, at Signum University are just about ready to be released. So I wanted to let you know what classes we're going to be offering in the summertime. Uh, one that we're offering, we're offering Beowulf in Old English. That is a lot of, you know, you may remember we offered an introduction to Old English class. A lot of people took the introduction to, to Old English. Um, really popular class, wonderful class, uh, sort of, you know, to take you zero to Beowulf in one semester uh, so that you can read Anglo-Saxon poetry in the original. This semester we are having by, by uh, you know, great uh, acclaim, you know, by, 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 by public demand, 
Um, we're doing a follow-up class to that. So for people who have studied Anglo-Saxon before, to be able to go through and do a seminar on Beowulf. So it's going to be a Beowulf translation seminar um, where you're going to be going through and doing your own translation of Beowulf and sort of discussing the poem chunk by chunk all the way through as you work through the Anglo-Saxon yourself. So this is kind of... Um, like what you take into an Anglo-Saxon for, right, is to be able to do something like this and to be able to do it with the uh, with the assistance and encouragement and guidance of, uh, you know, fellow students and faculty. So anyway, uh, so that's one class that we're doing is our is our, our Old English Beowulf seminar. Uh, we're continuing uh, our elementary Latin sequence. We had elementary Latin one for people who wanted to learn Latin. We have elementary Latin two uh, uh, this semester. We also are offering the class that we had to withdraw in the spring, but we're bringing it back in the summertime, and I'm, I'm still really excited about this. So glad we're able to uh, to come back and do this again. The Inklings in Science Fiction by Douglas A. Anderson. Douglas Anderson, one of the greatest uh, uh, scholars of Tolkien and the Inklings in the world. Um, one of the most knowledgeable people about 20th century fantasy and science fiction that I know of. Uh, and he's going to be looking at sort of the, that 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 golden age of science fiction in the middle of the 20th century um, through the lens of the Inklings, looking at the the both the ways in which Lewis and Tolkien, especially, were thinking about science fiction themselves and, and interacting with the genre and making uh, making some attempts at it themselves and integrating some of its ideas into their own writings, as well as looking at some of the other writings that was sort of surrounding them and, and kind of within that that uh, that cultural moment that they were writing and it's a it, two worlds that a lot of people usually don't kind of think about um, uh, coinciding people associate uh, Lewis and Tolkien both so so exclusively with uh, uh, with with fantasy but uh, anyway this is this is you know a, a really interesting part of their uh, uh, part of their of their world. So that's another thing. And then finally, we have a, a brand new class by uh, a brand new uh, instructor, which I'm really excited about. This, uh, this class is called The Mythologies of Love and Sex, looking at traditional, um, well, you, you'll see. There will be more, I'll just kind of tease you with the course title there, and we'll come back and talk about it more later on. Um, but uh, it's, it's going to be a really fascinating look at, uh, at the, the sort of the amorous the, the tradition and its connections with mythology should be really, really fun. Okay, so, ready to go? Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about Dracula now. Um, now, I want to start... <laughs> We're going to get through all my slides, but nevertheless, I want to start with it with a couple of general comments. Um, it's very easy. Well, okay, this is really easy when you're talking about any book, but I find that Dracula is um, Dracula is is it's particularly tempting. It seems for people to kind of go in this direction. I would urge us, I would urge you as you're reading through the book and, and as we're sort of thinking it through together, to try as hard as you can to avoid applying generalizations to the text. Now, that might seem like a pretty simple thing to say, like, well, of course, I'm not going to just apply generalizations to the text. But it's so easy to do that. And people do it all the time. I mean, it's it's really easy to, and I think of this uh, with respect as going all English teacher on a text, right? That is to, to sort of take a, 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 like for instance, 
um, it's super easy to look at, say, the scene with Jonathan Harker and the three vampire women that we were looking at at the end of class last time. And you know, you it's as soon as you just start talking about like we see here, you know, these three women are a symbol of the Victorian anxiety about feminine sexuality. As soon as you start talking that way, you can go on for as long as you like, and you and the text will fit, and it's it'll be it'll be great, right? You can you can you can keep that running for as long as you like. There's so many things you can fit into it. Um, all you just have to talk, you just have to talk about like Victorian anxieties and all these things, and um, and uh, and Bob's your uncle. I mean, you, you you'll have this text eating out of your hand as soon as you start doing that. You can do that. You can talk that way. But what I find generally, when you start talking that way, you're just talking. You're not really listening. Okay, it's like. Um, it's like the literary interpretive version of stereotyping people, right? Where instead of actually like meeting and getting to know individual people, you just put them in a category, right? Like a racial category and say like, well, I know that, you know, that, uh, you know, Jewish people are all like that and you're Jewish. And so therefore, I, you know, no, like you can't do that, right? We know you can't do that. And yet we do that with books all the time, right? Um, or it's like, you know, simplistic media coverage, the kind of thing that drives me crazy, right? Where, like, an event happens and you can see, you know, a me- whatever media outlet and whatever medium it's it's discussing it, they kind of latch on to a really simplistic narrative, right? Which is obviously really crudely simplifying what is obviously a complex situation, right? But there's a, but there's a really simple narrative that they can kind of bring in, because it's kind of something that, that rocks their boat anyway, right? So Or something anyway that they think is going to be sensational and, and get them ratings or readers or something like that. So they just kind of run with that, right? And you can make it work. And it, it works well, and it gets your readers, right? Just as um, latching onto ideas like Victorian anxiety about feminine sexuality will, you know, get, might get you a good grade on an English paper, maybe. Um, and certainly it's, uh, you know, it, at least it sounds like you're saying something really interesting and sophisticated. And maybe you are, but you're not saying much about this book um, any more than you're saying about a person when you're making a racial stereotype or really thinking through and analyzing an event and its implications when you're just running with a, a superficial media narrative. Okay. Um, so what do we do instead? What is our alternative when we're reading a book and how do we approach it? Instead, you've got to build your vocabulary from within the text. What is the text talk about and how does it talk about it what kind of words does it use what kind of language does it use what does it show itself to be interested in um it's okay to go outside the book to understand references i'm not saying like you have to imagine the book like it's in a complete vacuum and don't uh, you know don't don't think about victorian england at all right i'm not saying that because of course that's kind of silly right there are lots of things which are obviously contemporary references in which you you know if if you don't know anything about victorian society about 19th century england then you're going to not understand what they're talking about right like for instance when dracula when uh, jonathan is in dracula's library and he's looking at the books uh, that Dracula has. What's the significance of the titles that Jonathan lists out, right? He lists out really familiar books. Well, but what were those books, right? And what does it suggest that Dracula has those? What you don't know unless you know something about 19th century England, right? So I'm not saying that that kind of knowledge is irrelevant, that you should ignore historical context entirely or anything like that. But I am saying that as soon as you start bringing in generalizations about the period and applying those to the book, you're leaving the book behind, right? Um, so I, my, so one kind of rule of thumb, 
if you catch yourself using the word Victorian very often when talking about this book, you're probably you're probably failing in this way, right? You're you're probably falling prey to that particular temptation. Um, I that's one generalization because you know the Victorian period is an eminently stereotypable period, right? We have some some simplistic narratives about the Victorian era, right? And so it's just it's right there. It's very it's very readily available to us. Just like you know, again, like some racial stereotypes might be, like certain media narratives are just like right there. You know, it's 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 it's, it's low hanging fruit, right? Stereotypes are, you know, sort of generalized concepts about the Victorian era. That's low-hanging fruit as well, right? And again, I'm not saying there's there's absolutely nothing in it, but I am saying that you're not going to actually learn much about the book. Um, you've begun with some stereotypes about Victorian England, and you will leave with certain Victoria stereotypes about Victorian England, but you're not going to learn anything uh, in doing that. So... Um, uh, let's not build castles in the air. And the cool thing is that this practice of careful reading is actually demonstrated for us within this book when we read it carefully. It's one of the things that makes this book so much fun. Um, I, um, I used to teach this book um, back when I uh, used to teach English 101, you know, freshman composition uh, every semester. I, I, I used to teach Dracula every semester because this book is like it's like a how-to guide for how to read a book carefully. Because ultimately, this is a book that's all about reading books carefully. In fact, it's not only a book about reading books carefully, it's a book about reading this book carefully. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, 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 it, it gets really meta in that way in some really fun ways. Um, but anyway, let's look at and let's 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 do some of this uh uh what what i'm what i'm talking about this because it's sort of vocabulary building and seeing if we can begin to kind of occupy the sort of imaginative space of this text and the linguistic space of this text try, try to understand how it's talking and what we're supposed to be interested in so let's look at jonathan's character um i mentioned this last time that i wanted to come back today and look at the at the at the at the shift in jonathan's character because when we see the direction that Jonathan's character go, when we see sort of like what's at stake for Jonathan Harker as this bizarre sequence unfolds right in the first four chapters uh, in his rather disastrous business trip to Transylvania, um, we see, um, uh, we see, um, uh, we can see what, he, not only what he really cares about, but we can see what Stoker is really invested in, right? We can see, in a sense, what this story is really focused on. So, so let's do it. So here's Jonathan near the very beginning. I did not sleep well, though my bed was comfortable enough, for I had all sorts of queer dreams. There was a dog howling all night under my window, which may have had something to do with it, or it may have been the paprika, for I had to drink up all the water in my carafe and was still thirsty. Towards morning I slept and was wakened by the continuous knocking at my door, so I guess I must have been sleeping soundly then. I had for breakfast more paprika, and a sort of porridge of maize flour which they said was mamaliga, and and eggplant stuffed with forcemeat, a very excellent dish, which they call implatata. Memorandum. Get, rep get recipe for this also. I had to hurry breakfast, for the train started a little before eight, or rather it ought to have done so, for after rushing to the station at seven-thirty, I had to sit in the carriage for more than an hour before we began to move. It seems to me that the further east you go, the more unpunctual are the trains. What ought they to be in China?' 
Okay. I know Curtis so much paprika, right? Um, exactly. Uh, now, by the way, um, what, why, what do we see? Yeah, yeah. Kay is pointing to the, that delightful phrase. It may have been the paprika. Why does he say that? Do you understand what he's saying there? Notice there's only one unsettling element in this whole thing. This is a completely mundane traveler's account, right? Except for one small detail, one, to use his word, one queer touch, right? One queer thing happened to him this first time. What what was it? His dreams. Yes, he had queer dreams. And he doesn't know what to make of those dreams. He doesn't even seem to remember them, or at least doesn't speak of them, right? But his dreams were disturbing. So what does he do? What do we see him do? How does he respond to his queer dreams? Exactly. Tom, I, if I'm remembering correctly, you are quoting. This is a, this is a 19th century idea. So this is one of those places where we need the historical context to explain. He is finding a rational explanation for this, right? I didn't have dreams because I'm scared, nor did I have dreams because uh, um, something like weird and scary is going on. It was a perfectly normal phenomenon and can easily be explained, Right, um, there, and he gives two immediately apparent potential explanations. Right, one, the dog howling all night under his window. So, you know, the sound of the dog, of you know, the sort of the eerie sound of the dog howling might have affected him subconsciously as he was dreaming. Right, that's one perfectly logical explanation for this, and the other, of course, is what he ate the night before. And this is a very common... Of course, you'll remember exactly. Sarah and Tom Hillman are both remembering uh, and Carita, the famous scene in which this... When Remember, this is what Ebenezer Scrooge says when he first sees the ghost of Marley, and he says, there is more of gravy than of grave about you, right? He's he, He ascribes his experience of seeing the ghost of Marley entirely to what he had for dinner the night before. It was a very common belief in 19th century England that if you ate food that was too rich or food that didn't agree with you, one manifestation of that is that it would give you very unsettling dreams. So, um, so again, so his, his pointing to the paprika there, it may have been the paprika, that's a, that's a, that's a perfectly scientific explanation, right, for why he could have had queer dreams. So we already see that impulse to explain, right? Uh, even though there's nothing really weird to explain. I mean, okay, he had a bad dream, right? No big deal, right? Um, <clears throat> and yet we can see that impulse. Um, we can see that impulse right away. Now, what else? What else do we see here? Well, we see, notice that sort of the overall sense of, like, what's his attitude that we see in this? I, I, I think that's how I'd say it. What kind of attitude do we see from, uh, uh, from, from, Jonathan Harker in this in this passage. Yeah, good. He's 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 very casual. It is yeah, Jonathan. It does read just like a you know any old traveler's journal, right? Um, experiencing like strange local foods that aren't like what he gets at home, right? All that paprika. Um, could, yeah, James uh, Liebach says specifically a spoiled Westerner visiting the uncivilized hinterlands. Exactly, that's the attitude, right? Um, he's um, he's it's, there's more than a touch of superiority. Right to his attitude here, um, you know he he he's he's not 
too snooty. I mean, he doesn't look down on them. He's not scornful. You know, it's nothing bad like that, but there is this sense of, like, oh, I am I am traveling. I am roughing it in this inferior and uncivilized, though scenic and lovely world, right? Um, I mean, like that kind of snooty remark about the, about the trains. Stuffy, Morgan, I think is a perfectly apt description. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, uh, Tomas says, and things uh, things don't work as predictably. Yes, yes, good, good. Um, okay, look. Uh, so this is now just a, just um, just the same page, right? He says, I read that every known superstition in the world is gathered into the horseshoe of the Carpathians, as if it were the center of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. If so, my stay may be very interesting. Memorandum. I must ask the Count all about them. What do we see here? Again, for those of you who are who are who are new to these class sessions, I love it if when I while I'm reading the passage aloud, you just make observations. What jumps out at you? What do you think uh, about this passage? And then I, I I never get a chance to address everybody's observations because I get lots of them as they come through. But but I love to hear what you uh, uh, what you think about that. Um, <laughs> Michael Cheskowski thinks he kind of sounds like Bilbo Baggins uh, running off with no pocket handkerchiefs. In some ways, in some ways, um, yeah, Nancy, I, I think that you're you're capturing the tone there, and Cynthia as well. Nancy says he really does go into this thinking that Eastern European folklore is adorable. Yeah, notice that again. There's that sort of superiority there, right? There's no question of him taking these ideas seriously. Right, he already ha- it's, he doesn't have an explanation exactly, right? But but that that image, as if they were the center of some sort of imaginative whirlpool. The key word there, of course, is imagine. Well, both words, imag- imaginative and whirlpool, are important. Right, whirlpool suggests that the imaginations of or the imaginings of people in this area are all like whipped around and wild and kind of disjointed and crazy, right? Um, everything kind of swirled together and all jumbled up. In other words, they don't. You don't take them seriously, right? And that's, of course, seems to be one of the implications of his use of the word imaginative. Right? He's not talking about beliefs in his mind. He's talking about imaginations, right? These the things those peasants do imagine, right? Just very interesting, right? Um, and I'll be fascinated to uh, see more and more of this uh, as we as we go along. Um, he is, Penny, you're right, he is open to finding out about new places. He's not, he's not snooty in that way, right? He's not standoffish, right? He's not like, he's not looking down his nose at people exactly. Um, he does seem to go into it with that sort of superior attitude, but it's not really, um, it's, it's not a bad superior attitude, right? I mean, it's not that kind of superior attitude. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. And yeah, Penny, you're right. There's nothing alarming about those superstitions. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Yeah. Tom Hillman connects imaginative with not rational, and whirlpool with chaos. Right. Absolutely. But Nick, what a wonderful uh, observation. Nick Marazzo points out that, of course, the other implication of the whirlpool image is that it has a center. Right, that's really neat. Now, that presumably that's not what that doesn't seem to be what what Jonathan himself is implying, right? But it is a nifty kind of image in that way because there is a sense in which there is 
you know, a, a, a central vortex of this whirlpool, right? And the and the imaginations swirl around it, right? Uh, Dracula and Castle Dracula do seem to be, you know, at sort of the center of the thing. And uh, and yet, Nancy, I agree also that um, uh, the word superstition is kind of telling, right? Again, it's not a question of... Um, it's not a question of... Um, uh, uh, again, of beliefs, right? Like, I have my beliefs and they have their beliefs. There's there's no sense of equality there. Again, we see that that superior attitude, right? Um, there's the way that he looks at the world, and, and that's the, the normal way and, and the right way, right, and the rational way. And then there's these su- imaginative superstitions that these people here in the Carpathians have. And won't it be interesting uh, and sort of queer, to use the word that he used last uh, in the last slide, uh, to, to learn about them. Um... Yeah, good. And Kay, you're right. He does have, um, there is something sort of, uh, there is something scientific, uh, that his approach to things. Um, he, he will be interested, curious, taking notes, gathering data. We do see him acting and we're going to see him like performing experiments, but we're going to be coming back to that, 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 that attitude is, I think, um, um, uh, is, uh, something that I think is, is, is important. Um, Okay. Um, yes, good, Mark. Thank you for pointing that out. Excellent observation. Uh, he, uh, Mark points out the assumption that the Count, as a noble, will be above all this and will be able to explain it to a fellow gentleman. Very, very keen observation. I absolutely agree with that. Um, that kind of, not just sort of way that he has uh, th- these foreigners stereotyped, right? But the way that he has these foreign peasants stereotyped uh, is, uh, I think, important because we see this uh, when we see him interacting with peasants. It is the eve of St. George's Day. Do you not know that tonight, when the clock strikes midnight, all the evil things in the world will have full sway? Do you know where you are going and what you are going to? She was in such evident distress that I tried to comfort her, but without effect. Finally, she went down on her knees and implored me not to go, at least to wait a day or two before starting. It was all very ridiculous, but I did not feel comfortable. However, there was business to be done, and I could allow nothing to interfere with it. I therefore tried to raise her up, and said as gravely as I could that I thanked her, but my duty was imperative, and that I must go. She then rose and dried her eyes, and taking a crucifix from her neck, offered it to me. I did not know what to do, for, as an English churchman, I have been taught to regard such things as in some measure idolatrous, and yet it seemed so ungracious to refuse an old lady meaning so well and in such a state of mind. She saw, I suppose, the doubt on my face, for she put the rosary round my neck and said, For your mother's sake, and went out of the room. Okay, now... What, again, what do we again we see that sense of superiority right there is um, it's not even on Jonathan's radar screen that she might actually know something that he doesn't know right um, I mean you can see from her point of view how ignorant this poor dumb Englishman is right do you know where you are going and what you are going to everybody knows everybody knows this right but uh, but uh, but no. Here's this here's this poor Englishman, poor ignorant Englishman, just walking blithely into it. Right? He, of course, has almost the opposite outlook. But why? 
hers is based on local knowledge, right? And of course, as we go on to see, um, his her, her fears are perfectly grounded and well justified, right? What does he have to go on? What does he have to oppose to her? Um, what, what does he have to oppose to her forebodings here? Her warnings. Yeah, James, he has a duty to do and, and business to conduct. Yes, though it's not like he's just being purely self-sacrificing there. Like, it's not just like, no matter, ma'am, whatever the danger, I cannot let that danger get in the way of, of you know, a, a solicitor's clerk in pursuance of his business, right? It's not just that, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's more than that, right? Um, it's about superstition, right? His conclusion that his preconception, not really conclusion, um, I should be very careful about that, his preconception that these superstitions, right, these imaginative beliefs that whirl around here in the Carpathians, um, are obviously not something that a rational Englishman should take seriously. Um, yeah, it's, it's all quite, it's all very ridiculous, this whole scene is ridiculous. Now, part of this seems to be like, she's making a scene and that embarrasses me, right? That seems to be part of why he calls it ridiculous there. Um, so, yeah, Rachel was just asking that question. Rachel Draper was saying, is he saying her fears are ridiculous or that his feeling of discomfort is ridiculous? I don't think he's saying it was ridiculous that I felt uncomfortable. Um, I think that he was saying it was ridiculous, um, like, basically to make a scene like this was ridiculous. You know, someone say like he's just going on a perfectly, you know, sort of routine business trip, right? And she's saying it, it, I mean it's easy to scoff at this, right? But I mean, if you're going on a business trip and you are about to check in to like the Marriott and somebody like you know, a wild-eyed person came up to you and said like this Marriott is haunted, you will surely be doomed if you stay here, you'd probably be like, dude, right? <laughs> back slowly away from the crazy guy, right? Would be our reaction. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, I think we it's, it's easy knowing what we know, right? That, uh, and knowing, I mean, again, even before we, and remember that what I was talking about last time about resisting what we already know about this, right? Try to put ourselves not only in Jonathan Harker's position, but even in the position of 1897 readers, Right, who who don't have, remember? They're all with Jonathan. They don't know the the name Castle Dracula means nothing to them, um, you know. So so they wouldn't even see anything uh, odd or ironic um, in Jonathan's uh, perspective. Um, and yes, isn't it interesting, Penny, that it's the Eve of Saint George's? That I find interesting too. Saint George, of course, being the patron saint of England. Um, so that's a that's an interesting kind of coincidence, right? It's a uh, particularly British holiday on which he's going. But again, notice, Penny, how in some ways that almost makes it, if that resonates with Jonathan at all, which it's not obvious that it does, but if it were to resonate with Jonathan at all, it would seem to make it the more ironic, right? Well, what better day for the Englishman to show up at Ca at Castle Dracula than on, you know, St. George's Day, right? Um, instead of thinking like, St. George's Day, no! Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, 
<laughs> Morgan Soul was pointing out that uh, I, I just basically described the opening of Friday the 13th. You're all doomed. This camp is doomed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, um, good, good. Um, yes, yeah, several of you are pointing out that St. George slaying the dragon and with the whole, the whole Dracul uh, element of things. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that that works. That works. That seems um that seems important, uh relevant under the circuit. Again, certainly part of the um part of the kind of atmosphere, or I guess I would say we get this sense and I wonder if we can go quite this far. What we're getting here, right? We're getting these two different points of view. We're getting, you know, the nice peasant woman's point of view, and we're getting Jonathan's point of view. And the fact that it's St. George's Day and the resonance of St. George with England and spiritual protection and spiritual champion in slaying the dragon and dragon and Dracula and all that stuff um, would seems to sort of suggest to give a kind of mythic stamp of approval to her words, right? That, like, that is to say um, there's something there Right, there seems to be like there's there, there's there's some substance to what she's saying that you know we have reason in some ways to think that there's substance um, in uh, in 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 what she's saying and in how she's expressing her fears, um, but which Jonathan just it just it goes straight over his head. Um, now, the business with the crucifix. We'll come back to this. Um, one thing I would caution against. He is uncomfortable about the crucifix because he's very Anglican, right? Um, uh, you know, he's as an English churchman, he's been taught to regard such things as in some measure idolatrous. So he's uncomfortable about the crucifix because the, the Church of England doesn't do crucifixes, right? Let's make a, a thing explicit. I want to make sure we're all understand. I, I don't want to make any assumptions here. What's the difference between a crucifix and symbols with which an English churchman would be comfortable? What's the difference? Single, most obvious, glaring difference. Jesus. Yes, yes. The body of Jesus. The Catholic cross has the bloody Christ nailed onto it. And the English cross doesn't. It's a Protestant, plain, empty cross. Okay? Um, that's important. Yeah, the corpus, as you say, Jennifer, that's, that is important. Um, it's not just... It's the, the body of Jesus, crucified and dead on the cross. Okay. Good. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page about that, because uh, I think that's going to be important later on. Um there are a lot of things, especially in these earlier classes, that I'm, many times I'm going to be um, I'm going to be saying things like this will be important later on. Um, the it's one of the realities of the way that I'm trying to bring us through the book. Right, the, you know, the the kind of reading that I want us to try to do together, this kind of like let's just look at the patterns of the languages and try to build this this understanding and this vocabulary from within the text. One of the th- one of the the simple and unavoidable facts there is you can't do it in one reading, 
right? Because you can't always know when you come across particular references early in the text until you see the pattern unfold throughout the whole book. You don't always know what's significant and what isn't, like what's going to be coming up later on and what's not. So, you know, I'm uh, I'm not going to do a whole lot of spoilers, but um, uh, but I will, there will be some things that I'm just going to kind of flag, uh, you know, just to kind of draw our attention to, and I'm just going to ask you to, I'm just going to say, trust me, this is going to be important later on, and then when we do get further on down in the pattern, we'll come back to it and sort of uh, begin to kind of piece that together in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah, and Kay, that's, that's a really good point that you make. Kay says he doesn't seem to fully identify with the business about idolatry. He doesn't say uh, because it's idolatrous or something like that, but rather I have been taught that it's in some measure idolatrous. It is diluted, yeah, at least very highly qualified, right? Um, He doesn't seem to have really strong convictions on that point, right? And I do think that that's um, uh, that is an interesting point, uh, which is relevant. Okay, let's keep going. Here's him in his carriage the next morning, having uh, ignored the advice of the kindly old woman who put the crucifix around his neck for his mother's sake. Um, and notice that, by the way, that the sense of... We can see the sense of superiority going the other way around, right? I mean, she's treating him like a child, right? She, she just, you know, she tries to get him to listen to sense when he won't listen to sense. She just puts the crucifix around his neck and says, for your mother's sake. Right, I've done all I can here. Right, um, but again, there's that. You know, he is in speaking with her and talking about her. He's talking like I obviously know more than she does. We see that she reciprocates the feeling, right? And we kind of know that she's kind of the one who's right, and he's kind of the one who's wrong. But anyway, okay, moving forward on the carriage. I could hear a lot of words often repeated, queer words, for there were many nationalities in the crowd. So I quietly got my polyglot dictionary from my bag and looked them out. I must say they were not cheering to me. For amongst them were Ordog, Satan, Pokol, Hell, Stregoika, Witch, Vrolok, and Vekozlok, both of which mean the same thing, one being Slovak and the other Servian for something that is either werewolf or vampire. Memorandum. I must ask the Count about these superstitions. When we started, the crowd round the inn door, which had by this time swelled to a considerable size, all made the sign of the cross and pointed two fingers towards me. With some difficulty, I got a fellow passenger to tell me what they meant. He would not answer at first, but on learning that I was English, he explained that it was a charm or guard against the evil eye. I don't understand why his being English tipped the scale, uh, but there it is. This was not very pleasant for me, just starting for an unknown place to meet an unknown man, but everyone seemed so kind-hearted and so sorrowful and so sympathetic that I could not but be touched. All right. Um, what do you see? What do you see here? Yes, Philip, vampire is in bat. That is, there is no question, there is a, there is a, it, it is a 100% chance that when Jonathan Harker writes that, that is either werewolf or vampire, he means vampire bat. That's, that's all he's thinking about, right? That, it means something about, like, blood-sucking undead. He's not thinking about blood-sucking undead. That concept is not a thing for him, right? It's, it, it's either, oh, he's heard of werewolves, apparently, but not vampires, as we know them. Vampire bats. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Andrea, red flags everywhere here, right? I mean, you'd, th- you'd think, 
he would and and notice how universal this everybody it's not just the woman right it's not just like the the very wise and insightful literally everybody in the crowd <laughs> knows what's going on here and are both feeling sorry for him they're sorrowful and sympathetic they they pity Jonathan but they're also making a sign against the evil eye because they uh they're afraid that like, he might be in league with him, right? I mean, if this is actually like a messenger in the employ of of of, of Count Dracula, you know, or at the very least, um, if he's not in Dracula's employ yet, he's likely to become so. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, notice how detached he is. I mean, several of you are suggesting, like, shouldn't he have maybe become a little alarmed when he when he translated the words, right? Um, and notice what they're all saying about him um, when, they're, when they're looking at him and talking about him. Say, uh, Satan, uh, hell, uh, witch, <laughs> werewolf. Um, yeah, it's like, um, maybe, maybe we should be... Um, Maybe we should be a little sympathetic, right? Maybe we should be. Uh, maybe we should be alarmed. Um, nah, nah. He 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 he's maintaining a sort of an anthropological distance, right? I must ask the count about these superstitions. Notice, there's that same, uh, you know, that same. Um, uh, you know, one nobleman, or you know, one gentleman to another, right? Uh, we can we can surely uh, you know discuss these peasant superstitions, um, but also notice there is some uneasiness creeping over the horizon, right? As soon as he translates them, um, you know, I mean, he does say, "I must say, they were not cheering to me," right? It's very understated. Right? You know, he's not saying, I'm getting seriously freaked out. He's not yet seriously freaked out. He will be seriously freaked out before he gets to Castle Dracula. And we, we looked at those scenes last time with the wolves and the blue flames and all that stuff, right? Uh, some seriously uncanny business is going to be going down before he gets uh, before he gets to the castle. But right now, he still admits that these things are... They're not cheering, right? It's not, not comforting to find these things that he's saying. Um... Notice the situation here. Jonathan is here experiencing, I would say, his first sort of crisis of faith, you could almost say. That's not quite fair. But that is, there are two options for how he responds to this, right? He either holds strong in his beliefs, by which I mean not his you know, Anglican Christian beliefs, because that doesn't seem to enter into it so much. Rather, I mean his English 19th century modern scientific beliefs, right? In what is and is not true and what can and cannot happen. Um, he either holds strong to that and is unaffected, therefore, by this, right? I mean, the weirder, the more queer they speak and more queerly they act, then the more evidence he has to continue thinking himself superior, Right? Um, so that's one option. He could go that direction, or he could actually listen to the beliefs of the locals and consider and open himself up to the possibility that maybe there's something in what they're saying and they know what they're talking about, right? And we see him go in neither direction. Absolutely, we see Jonathan kind of in the middle between those things. He he doesn't submit. He doesn't get seriously freaked out, and yet 
he is um, uncheered by this, right? He's we see him uncomfortable, right? Um, and even the, you know his response, you know, this was not very pleasant for me. Just starting from an unknown place to meet an unknown man. In other words, I have some natural anxieties, right? I am going into uncertainty. And to have that uncertainty be framed with all of this weirdness, um, uh, you know, that's... Uh, um, it's not very pleasant, right? Um, but anyway, we can see... But, but I think, it, to me, it's interesting that we can see Jonathan already, although he's, you know, he's not changing his mind, right? We don't see, he's not, uh, he's, he's not had it twice. I don't think it's, 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 uh, it's fair to call this a crisis of faith exactly. Um, but we see him kind of poised. He's not 100% in either direction. Um, the changes in Jonathan's perspective as time goes on are very subtle. Um, and that's why I think it's really fascinating to look at these passages in a row. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Michael uh, Michael Thurway says uh, Jonathan is now in the center of a whirlpool of foreign words, words, ideas, and nationalities. Um, yeah, yeah, we see him in the middle of the whirlpool here, right? And the question is, is he going to engage his own imagination with that within that imaginative whirlpool? Right? We will see the concept of imagination is going to be something that comes up uh, for him, uh, something that he raises frequently once he's in the castle. This is at, at the end of his first night uh, with Dracula. We were both silent for a while, and as I looked towards the window, I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened, I heard, as if from down below in the valley, the howling of many wolves. The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, Listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make. Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, he added, notice Jonathan doesn't say what his expression was, right? But Jonathan pulled a face there when Dracula says that. Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Then he rose and said, but you must be tired. Your bedroom is all ready, and tomorrow you shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon, so sleep well and dream well. And, with a courteous bow, he opened for me himself the door to the octagonal room, and I entered my bedroom. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things which I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. Uh, Yeah, Sarah, there are very few of the movies who resist the awesomeness of that line. Listen to them. The children of the night. What music they make. Um, one of the most obviously screenplayable lines in the entire book. Um, yeah, okay, good. He's in a sea of wonders, thinking of the whirlpool. Yes, good, good, good connection. Notice he is, he, he is now having the experience of feeling himself to be buffeted around in this whirlpool, right? Notice another thing here. He doesn't want to talk about it, right? I, I think we can see two reactions going on in Jonathan here. On the one hand, he's creeped out. Remember, he's just had his uncanny midnight ride with the wolves and the lights and everything, right? It was pretty freaky, and now he's here, and so, and then, you know, his host is all like, you know, uh, you cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Um, so he's creeped out, right? He res- 
So if one reaction is to be creeped out. Now, I would emphasize, being creeped out is a perfectly rational response. He is responding to what he is seeing and hearing. He has seen and heard some things which would make anyone, almost anyone, creeped out, right? Um, I doubt, I fear. He's not saying, like, I'm afflicted with just irrational worries. No, he's not afflicted with irrational worries. He doubts, he fears, he thinks strange things, right? Why does he think those things? Because he has seen some strange things. The things I have seen this seen and heard this evening are leading me to draw some pretty uncomfortable conclusions, right? And I think that that's a really important point. That this is not like him his losing track of his emotions, right? But notice that's the other reaction, right? The other reaction is emotionally to resist that, right? He doesn't dare to admit. He doesn't actually say it. Just as he doesn't describe his expression, so he doesn't say what he's thinking. What strange things? Do you, well, he's not going to say them because he doesn't dare confess them to his own soul, so he doesn't write them in his journal. He right? doesn't write them in his diary. Um, but we get a hint at what they are by the expression that comes afterwards. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. That is the first expression of piety on his part, Right? He's talked. He's kept himself very distant from the beliefs of others, and he was able to kind of look at the, um, you know, the 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 even the spiritual beliefs of the peasant woman who put the crucifix around his neck as sort of quaint and embarrassing, frankly, right? Um, and yet now we see him for the first time uttering a similar kind of spontaneous sentiment: "God keep me," right? Just sort of reaching out. He 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 feels like he is out of control, right? Um, <laughs> For my mother's sake, exactly, Mark. Not quite gotten to that that uh, uh, that that point yet, but um, um, but but close. Several of you are asking if there's a significance to the shape of the octagonal room. I don't know. Um, there might be. Uh, I'm open to the idea that there is. I don't know what it. I don't know what it is. I I can't. I don't see anything in the book. Like that is. I don't. I can't remember any. Any eights, you know, like the number eight being significant at other points in the book. I, I'm trying to think of some, but I can't think of any. Carfax is means quatrefa, the four sided, but that's four, not eight. I don't, uh, um, I don't really know. I mean, Gerald, you're right. Clearly, it seems that if it's octagonal, it means it's it's a it's it's a floor in one of the towers. Um, it certainly. Contri- when once Jonathan is convinced that he's a prisoner, the idea that that feels more like a cell, like, hey, Jonathan Harker, you are locked in a tower uh, in, in a tower room in a creepy castle. Um, it certainly contributes to that atmosphere. And the fact that while he's describing it here, he doesn't think anything of it. Like, nice room. Kind of cell-like, but, you know, that's okay. No, I mean, he's not thinking about that at all. He just notes in passing, like, oh, it's an octagonal room. Um, but that image in our mind might... Um, uh, might might sort of make it seem uh, to kind of anticipate the sense of uh, imprisonment. I, that's, that seems to me uh, kind of weak, um, or at least not really compelling from the text. Um, but, uh, but I don't really have anything else uh, for that. As Jennifer, as Jennifer Miner says, I think it's just a particularly odd shape for a room. Yeah, Jennifer, at the very least, it's just 
this place is weird, right? I mean, it's very different from home, where like the rooms have four walls. Um, possibly, possibly. Um, notice, uh, the final point on this passage, notice his sort of implicit fears of madness. He's not saying it yet, right? But um, there's this question of... Um, again, the, the fact that he's thinking strange things um, is, uh, you know, am I... Uh, Am I am I completely okay? Right is seems to be a concept which is beginning to uh, uh, come up above the horizon here, beginning to dawn. I began to fear as I wrote in this book that I was getting too diffuse. But now I am glad that I went into detail from the first, for there is something so strange about this place and all in it that I cannot but feel uneasy. I wish I were safe out of it, or that I had never come. It may be that this strange night existence is telling on me, but would that were all. If there were anyone to talk to, I could bear it, but there is no one. I have only the Count to speak with, and he. I fear I am myself the only living soul within the place. Let me be prosaic as far as facts can be. It will help me to bear up, and imagination must not run riot with me. If it does, I am lost. Let me say at once how I stand, or seem to great passage here, right? Um, what do you see? What do you notice? He's increasingly convinced that there is something seriously funky going on here, right? Um, there is something so strange about this place and all in it that I cannot but feel uneasy, right? I cannot but feel uneasy. Uneasiness is mandatory, why? Well, why is uneasiness mandatory? Just because you're a twitchy guy? Because you're, you know, part of an imaginative whirlpool? No. Because of the details. Right? I'm glad that I, I've been so observant. That I've been recording everything so carefully because the stuff that I've seen makes it such that I cannot but feel uneasy. It's not possible not to be uneasy based on what I've seen. Um... Notice that he takes refuge in rational observation. Let me be prosaic as far as facts can be. It will help me to bear up, and imagination must not run riot with me. Right? If if he lets, if he just gives his imagination rein, he he will be lost. Right. Um. But um. Uh. But yeah. So okay. So he 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 um. Yeah, he does that. Several of you are pointing out his comment about the living soul. Um, I fear I am myself the only living soul within the place. That's an odd thing to say. Notice again, st- he's still being coy with himself in his own journal. He doesn't dare write what he thinks or fears, but he's like hinting like to himself in his journal, right? Um, I fear I am myself the only living soul within the place. Really? Um, okay. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's, that's important, right? That's interesting. Remember, this is, uh, where, where we are in the story at this point. This is the opening paragraph to the section of his journal where he, uh, talks about the mirror incident, right? When Dracula lunged at his throat. Um, so in other words, you always have to remember when he's introduced, when he's doing these little introductory bits, uh, you have to kind of look ahead and remember that thing has already happened, right? So he's writing this in the context of having 
having already had the mirror incident happen to him, and he's now sitting down to uh, um, to actually record it. Um, okay, more. When I found that I was a prisoner, a sort of wild feeling came over me. I rushed up and down the stairs, trying every door and peering out of every window I could find. But after a little, the conviction of my helplessness overpowered all other things. When I look back after a few hours, I think I must have been mad for the time, for I behaved much as a rat does in a trap. When, however, the conviction had come to me that I was helpless, I sat down quietly, as quietly as I have ever done anything in my life, and began to think over what was best to be done. I am thinking still, and as yet have come to no definite conclusion. Of one thing I am certain, that it is no use making my ideas known to the Count. He knows well that I am imprisoned, and as he has done it himself, and has doubtless his own motives for it, he would only deceive me if I trusted him fully with the facts. So far as I can see, my only plan will be to keep my knowledge and my fears to myself, and my eyes open. I am, I know, either being deceived, like a baby, by my own fears, or else I am in desperate straits, and if the latter be so, I need, and shall need, all my brains to get through. What do you see? Yeah, Kay makes an interesting point. Kay says uh, he seems to have two refuges refuges from insanity. One, his rationality, but the other, anyone to talk to, as he says. His capacity for human connection, how he was touched by the townsfolk. Yeah, and of course, uh, Kay, this journal is uh, part of that, right? He doesn't have anyone to talk to, but at least he can write this down. It's, it's almost like he's writing to Mina. Right? He doesn't exactly mean Mina Turek. It's not addressed to Mina like a letter would be addressed to Mina. Um, he talks about Mina sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of too much for that. It shows that it, he's not addressing her, but yet there's some kind of companionship even in his even in his journal, um, in his journal writing. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, uh, Ian, that's a great point. Ian Blaylock says, uh, Jonathan might seem dumb when he's around the peasants, but I think this shows how inte- how intelligent he really is. And Ian, I think that's a really important point. Jonathan's sort of change as he goes along is not about abandoning like intellect for faith or inte- intellect for belief or you know like I used to call them superstitions but now I see that they were really true despite what my 19th century scientific point of view led me to believe right that's not where he goes at all not at all in fact it's like the opposite of that it is his scientific method it is his I shall make observations and I shall draw conclusions from them which um which saves him, which he relies upon, but more importantly, which leads him to the conclusion that Count Dracula is, like, one of the walking dead. Um, it is not abandoning his scientific perspectives that le- that leads him to that. It is adhering to it, which leads him to that. Um, notice, this business about being a prisoner, why, you know, on the one hand, so, so I mean, I'm about to say, why is that a big deal? That seems like a stupid question, but, um, it doesn't relate... It seems, like, admittedly important, being incarcerated and everything is important, but tangential, if you see what I mean. That is to say, um, 
the question of whether or not he's being kept as a prisoner, it's, you know, like, germane to the question of is the dude imprisoning him an undead or not, but but it's not the same question, right? There's the question of, on the one hand, there are seriously weird, uncanny things going on, and is there anything in that, or am I just afraid of nothing? Am I being freaked out and irrational and imaginative, right? Um, that's one question. The imprisonment thing, it's like, it's 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 one of those cold, hard, simple facts, right? Fact. He can. He has doubts and fears about Dracula. He even said in his previous journal entry, right, which is the one we had just been reading, that about, about his fearing he's the only living soul in the place, right? He, he, he gave voice cryptically to that fear. Um, but that might be... He might be fooling himself. Imagination might be running riot with him, right? Um... It's just strange and weird and different, and so he's jumping to weird, crazy, imaginative conclusions. That's one possibility. Now he has something clear. He has what he believes to be evidence that Dracula does have malicious intent towards him. In other words, clearly, he now can prove to himself all is not as it seems. Right? All is not as it seems. Um, He is... He, Dracula is acting courteous and like he's my host, but he's not, in fact, just my host. Therefore, I am right to say... I have, I have reason to believe not always as it seems, and I am not just going crazy when I think that there's something different going on here. Right? Let's keep going. When later I saw him through the chink of the hinges of the door laying the table in the dining room, I was assured of it. That is, that Dracula has no servants. For if he does himself all these menial offices, surely it is proof that there is no one else to do them. This gave me a fright, for if there is no one else in the castle, it must have been the Count himself, who was the driver of the coach that brought me here. This is a terrible thought, for if so, what does it mean that he could control the wolves, as he did, by only holding up his hand in silence? How was it that all the people at Bistritz and on the coach had some terrible fear for me? What meant the giving of the crucifix, of the garlic, of the wild rose, of the mountain ash? Bless that good, good woman who hung the crucifix round my neck, for it is a comfort and a strength to me whenever I touch it. It is odd that a thing which I have been taught to regard with disfavor and as idolatrous should, in a time of loneliness and trouble, be of help. Is it that there is something in the essence of the thing itself, or that it is a medium, a tangible help, in conveying memories of sympathy and comfort? Sometime, if it may be, I must examine this matter and try to make up my mind about it. Okay. Yeah, James, exactly. It's not like a blind faith question. It's not like, I shall choose to believe despite what my reason tells me. It's the opposite of that. See how carefully he reasons this through. The one small detail, right? His observation of the Count um, laying the table. Right, performing the menial offices of a servant, the 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 the. And while we know the count has been pretending he did have servants who were doing all these things, just shy servants who apparently never made themselves seen. Right, um, but um, but anyway, so so he's from that one observation, he draws these conclusions and notice that he is unafraid to look these conclusions in the face. Notice, for instance, he does not question his observation. 
he doesn't think like for instance was i crazy when i when i, I clearly that guy obviously couldn't have been commanding the wolves right that must have just been me i must have been seeing something wrong right i couldn't have no why why not because jonathan is too intelligent for that he is too genuinely devoted to the rational process to throw that away cuz he saw that and he knows he saw that to disregard that would be mere pig-headed blind faith in that one narrow world that he had, that world that we saw kind of coming into conflict with the peasants, you know, in Bistritz, right? Um, He was living in his world and they were living in their world. Um, The fact that he is willing to acknowledge the genuineness of the observations that he's making and to follow from them to the very unsettling (laughs) conclusions that they are leading him to shows that, again, this is... um, uh, this is it tells us something about him and about his sort of sincerity in the rational process so again it 's not about reason versus faith in that sense um in fact, if anything, I think we can see Stoker deliberately working against that right um, yeah, yeah, and good yeah uh, um several of you are pointing to his scientific uh uh attitude towards the crucifix as well, yeah, um exactly. Right, he's thinking about, what, uh, uh, but again, notice the notice the shift, right? Th- thinking about the scene with the with the peasant woman originally, you know, and the shift from that to bless that good good woman who hung the crucifix round my neck, right? The the, the the humility of that statement, right? The recognition, oh, she did know something I didn't know, right? Um, he is recognizing the. Um, the fact that his presumptions were wrong, right? He is an, he is allowing himself to confess that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, hang on to the crucifix reference. Remember his question that he's going to make up his he he tables the question, right? But he has the question: What is it with the crucifix, right? Is it objective or subjective? It's significance. Is there something in the essence of the thing itself that is... Is there some kind of objective power or significance in the thing itself? Or is it subjective? That is, is it a medium in conveying memories of sympathy and comfort? That is, it makes me feel better. Because in some way it sort of transmits... Recalls memories of sympathy and comfort. Um... That's his question. He doesn't answer that question. We should um, remember this as we move forward. We'll come back to that question uh, later on. But I will say, evidence suggests not the latter, I would say. right? As, for instance, why would a crucifix be associated with memories of sympathy and comfort for Mr. English Churchman, who's always been taught to regard it as in some measure idolatrous. That was the association he had with the crucifix, not sympathy and comfort. Uh, so it seems a little unlikely that it would be working in that kind of uh, you know, subjective and purely psychological way. But he leaves that open as an option, right? Okay. Keep following Jonathan down his path. Let me begin with facts. Bare, meager facts, verified by books and figures, and of which there can be no doubt. I must not confuse them with experiences which will have to rest on my own observation or my memory of them. Okay? Um, that's, uh, 
that's this is an interesting step. We see he continues to fear wild imaginings, right? He is he continues to be he doesn't want to let imagination run riot with him. We see him continuing to cling to facts, not just facts, bare meager facts, verified by books and figures. We see him desiring objectivity, right? He doesn't even want to trust his own observation or his memory of his own observations. He wants to be as objective as possible. This is before the second conversation that he has with the Count. Um, this is when he's, uh, he's reco- what he was going, what he's going to go on and record in this entry is like when he finds the letter to Samuel F. Billington. You know, he, he looks at the, he records the addresses of, uh, of, of the letters that the Count sees and everything. Um, yes, and, and, and gosh, yeah, Rachel, doesn't it sound like the author's note at the beginning? I completely agree. Um, experiences which will have to rest on my own observation or my memory of them. It's exactly recalling, or rather, addressing exactly the same issue, um, that, uh, that Stoker raised in that little prologue, right? That little epigraph. Um, Insisting this is these are first-hand accounts, right? Uh, uh, giving you know no instance in which memory may err, right, or anything like that. Um, the author began by telling us what you're going to read are bare, meager facts, right? Good. What manner of man is this? this? Is right after he sees him crawling face down like a lizard, right? What manner of man is this? Or what manner of creature is it in the semblance of man? I feel the dread of this horrible place overpowering me. I am in fear, in awful fear, and there is no escape for me. I am encompassed about with terrors that I dare not think of. He's still not daring to think, right? Um, we, We still see him resisting the conclusions that he's coming to, and yet the conclusions that he's coming to which, you know, we've seen him not shying away from coming to those conclusions, from making observations and following where those observations lead, Um, and yet as those conclusions seem to add up, we see him still not comfortable with it, right? And yet we, we see that conclusion coming clearer and clearer before his... He's terrified of the conclusions that his observations are pointing to, but notice he's no longer questioning the observations or their objectivity, right? Um, he's just afraid, terrified of the conclusion that they are leading him to. God preserve my sanity, for to this I am reduced. Safety and the assurance of safety are things of the past. Uh, remember what he's processing here? This is the beginning of his journal entry. Almost, mo- mo- most of these passages are either the very end or the very beginning of, of, of his particular, of his individual journal entries. Um, this is the beginning of the journal entry that in which he's going to describe his encounter with the three vampire women, right? So that's the, um, um, that's the thing that's on his mind as he's writing this. God preserve my sanity, for to this I am reduced. Safety and the assurance of safety are things of the past. Whilst I live on here, there is but one thing to hope for, that I may not go mad, if indeed I be not mad already. If I be sane, then surely it is maddening to think that of all the foul things that lurk in this hateful place, the count is the least dreadful to me, that to him alone I can look for safety, even though this be only whilst I can serve his purpose. Great God, merciful God, let me be calm, for out of that way lies madness indeed.
I love the if. If I be sane, in the middle. Um, <clears throat> notice, I, I, to me, there's a kind of irony um, in that second, well, third sentence. Whilst I live on here, there is but one thing to hope for, that I may not go mad, if indeed I be not mad already. He feels that the things that he's seen, the conclusions he's been driven to, must be, like, are driving him mad, right? But it strikes me as ironic because it seems like there's, there's almost like a hope that he's mad already, right? Like, that would be, that would be so much nicer, Right, I mean, because notice the "if I be sane." What follows this this statement? If I be sane, if I be sane, if I'm sane, then this is what follows, and that thing that follows is too horrible even to contemplate. I mean, you'll notice how the conclusions which he was already terrified of have just ratcheted up by an order of magnitude. Right, like it's not just like not only confirmation that the count is as bad as he thinks he is, but that. Compared to the other things, the Countess is better, right? I mean, oh my goodness. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, yeah, Karita. If he's crazy, then n- none of this is true, and, and, and he doesn't have to worry about it, right? I mean, it would be tremendously comforting for himself to be able to think that he's mad. Um, and yet we see him fearing for his sanity and recognizing what it would mean if he is in fact um, if he is in fact not insane. We Notice we see his own uh, his own conflicted feelings, right? Um, that is, again, think of what he's digesting. His encounter with the three women. Think of, think of the set of observations that has just been added to his you know, total of prosaic facts, right? Um, he's, yeah, Sarah, there's not any paprika as far as we can tell, right? So, yeah, we're way past, be- he can't possibly blame this on the paprika. Yeah, we're, 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 uh, we're, we're way of the- no, see, but Sarah, the, there's a kind of parallel there, right? Um, I had this really weird dream, but maybe it was just the paprika, right? And now he's like, I am in a castle of nightmares, but maybe I'm insane, right? There's, there's like, there's like an element. There's a kind of parallel there, right? Um, anyway, um, remember what he's processing. He's processing his encounter with the three women. Again, think of the observations he's just had to digest. The fact that uh, the count is not the only one around. There are others, and they're. He's not. See- the count is holding him as a prisoner, and the count seems to have a plan, right? Um, and seems to be monstrous and inhuman in some ways. But the 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 predatory nature of the women, like the the baby eating Nancy, exactly. Yeah, James was just pointing that out too. The the fact that he just saw them make off with a living human child with apparent intent to eat it or something, right? To suck its blood. He acknowledges that. Um, uh, yeah, he acknowledges it's on, on the, uh, uh, in, the in, in the next passage. He knows what's going on here. Um, uh, anyway, so um, that's, it's worse, right? Remember, he hasn't had any confidence. Like, maybe the Count is a monster, but what does he want, 
Like, what kind of monster is he? Maybe he's like a criminal of some kind. Maybe he means to torture Jonathan. Maybe he's going to... Who knows what he's going to do? But yet, and again, this is another place where we have to resist what we know about vampires, right? You'd think, like, as soon as Jonathan goes down the uncanny, maybe he's not even really alive, he's not fully human, there's something monstrous about him. For us, we're immediately like, dude, he's probably going to suck your blood. He's going to suck your blood or eat your brains, one or the other, right? I mean, we're like, this is, a, this, is, this is obvious. Not obvious to Jonathan, right? It's only his encounter with the women that he's like, holy cow, they're going to drink my blood. Like, they're gonna say, they're just, there's a baby. They're, they just sucked the blood of a baby. This is what he's processing. Right, um, and it's uh, it's it's. For, I know it's the zombies that do brains, but that would be the other possibility, right? You got to keep your mind open here. Uh, Arthur he hasn't ruled out zombie yet, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So, um, so yeah, good, exactly, Nancy. He, he expects to be killed, but there's 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 being killed, <laughs> right? There's getting murdered, and I mean, like to like the idea that in fact. You are in your. You are like completely in the power of a murderous, inhuman, monstrous guy who's manipulating you and using you, and then going to kill you afterwards. That's scary. Like that's sufficiently freaky. That's a sufficiently terrifying conclusion of, of your observations. Um, the, um, um, but the level has just increased significantly, and we see, and notice his own sort of pious reaction increases to great God, merciful God, let me be calm. Um, his cryings out to God certainly increase as, uh, as times, uh, as, as things uh, increase. But, and Tom, you're absolutely right. The erotic slash horrible moment quickly gives way before the revelatory moment of horror. And Tom, I think it has to feed back on that too, right? I mean, remember one of the other observations that he is saddled with at this point is not just, I can't believe I witnessed these horrible creatures. She was going to kiss me, and I liked it, and I really wanted her to. And the fact that he learns after the fact, she was going to suck my blood. She was, And he's going to remember. He's certainly going to remember. It's going to linger in his mind, the feeling of her lips on his throat and the sensation of the tips of her teeth touching each other through his skin, right? And the knowledge, she was about to suck my blood, right? That she was going to drink my blood and suck... But it's not just that. And I wanted her to do it. And I bet part of him still wants her to do it when he's thinking back on it. And how do you deal with that, Right? I, you know the the idea that he's looking back at this, um, uh, in, not, I was about to call her infanticidal, but that's not good enough. Um, uh, infantophagus, what would the word be? Child eating. Um, anyway, um, uh, that's a mixture, isn't it? A linguistic mishmash, but whatever. Um, uh, Anyway, the fact that he's he, so you know so he would have those two images in his mind, right? He would be imagining the the woman who is who is you know kissing him, sucking the blood of a baby, but still like part of him has a wicked burning desire that she would kiss him more. I mean, uh, yeah, pidophagus. Uh, thank you, thank you. I was I was like combining Latin and Greek, and that wouldn't work. Pidophagus. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, Tom. That would be the word. Um, uh, good, good. Um, 
<laughs> I like that, Margaret. Margaret Joyce says, they're pediovores. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what they are. They're pediovores. Yeah, yeah, very good. <laughs> very good. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Anyway. Um, so again, talk. It's you know things have not just progressed, right? This is this is really taking things up to a to a whole new level. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I had not dreamt, the count must have carried me here. I tried to satisfy myself on the subject, but could not arrive at any unquestionable result. To be sure, there were certain small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which was not my habit. My watch was still unwound, and I am rigorously accustomed to wind it the last thing before going to bed, and many such details. But these things are no proof, for they may have been evidences that my mind was not as usual, and from some cause or other, I had certainly been much upset. I must watch for proof." Of one thing I am glad. If it was that the Count carried me here and undressed me, he must have been hurried in his task, for my pockets are intact. I am sure this diary would have been a mystery to him which he would not have brooked. He would have taken or destroyed it. As I look round this room, although it has been to me so full of fear, it is now a sort of sanctuary. For nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women who were, who are, waiting to suck my blood. Um... Yeah, doesn't he sound reasonable, uh, Mick? The, yeah, Nancy, yeah, the master of understatement, absolutely. Um, but, I mean, notice, um, notice the, 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 uh, this is, Jonathan, uh, pretty much his most scientific, right? As he is sort of closer and closer to the edge of madness, again, we see him, he's, he's no longer talking about taking refuge in observation and, and, you know, prosaic facts and things like that. We just see him doing it, and doing it with a kind of desperation. But notice, even when he's doing that, even when he's doing that, he is, um, he's not closing his mind. We don't see him simply going into denial, right? I can't prove that this thing really happened, right? No, he, like, that door's open to him. He acknowledges the fact that the observations he can make in his room here this morning do not prove that his vision... It might have been a dream, right? He could have been disturbed in his mind, which would have led to him having a really freaky dream, and then he had a freaky dream. That, that It could have just been that, right? Maybe it wasn't real. He could... He, I mean, you'd think that would be like a lifeline, but he doesn't go there, right? Um, I must watch for proof, he says. But then, then he does his if, right? If it was that the Count carried me, if it was real, he still pursues that line of thought. Um, he is still open, although horrified by the conclusions that his observations lead him. He doesn't shut them down. He refuses to close his mind, even to the the. Now he is saying openly. Um, well, because now he knows more, but before, remember, he wouldn't even say explicitly what it was that he feared, the fears that terrified him. Now he, he explicitly says, those awful women are waiting to suck my blood. Um, yeah, yeah. Good point, Tom. Oh, that is excellent. Um, hang on, let me find exactly where that... Oh, yes, good. Of one thing I am glad, if it was that the Count carried me here and undressed me. Um, uh, Tom is making the uh, grammatical distinction between if it was and if it were. If it were, the use of the subjunctive mood there would be stating a pure theoretical. Right? That's what he would be signaling. If it was, 
means alluding to something that might have actually happened, right? Mm. If this did happen, not if, in theory, this might have occurred. So he is, uh, we, we see him, um, even just through the choice of his verb mood there, um, we see him entertaining it as a very real possibility, not, not shutting him uh, down to it. Um, but you are right, Nancy. Um, uh, Nancy says, uh, but he's wrong. You know, he says that nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women. Nancy says, <clears throat> but he's wrong. Something can be more dreadful. And yes, Nancy, the horrible fact is that you are correct. Um, and, and when it comes to horrible, he's not seen anything yet. But, spoilers. Okay. So, tracing Jonathan's path. Isn't that interesting? To kind of lay... And I know I've been kind of going into an absurd amount of detail here, but um, but isn't it interesting to watch that go and to see how Bram Stoker does this, how he brings us through with Jonathan? And again, we can see when we look at these things, what matters to Jonathan? What are the terms? Looking at his observations and, you know, reason and imagination and madness and how all of those terms come in, rather than just kind of applying those willy-nilly or sort of thinking about, you know, making generalizations derived from what we know or what we think we know of the period. Looking at the way these terms are actually discussed here in the um, uh, in the in the story let's do more of this <clears throat> here's a, let's do another case study case study of building a vocabulary and by looking at uh, word patterns one thing which for me is always kind of a giveaway when we're um, when we're reading books like this is uh, um, oh wait, hang on. I, I'd forgotten there was one thing I wanted to say. Again, I just wanted to come back to what I was saying before about how uh, this book is so cool because it's uh, it's like it's, it, for me this is why I always chose to teach this book in introductory English classes because it's like the book that teaches you how to read books carefully. Um, notice that uh, Jonathan Harker is in the same situation, right? He is in a he is in a not a crisis of faith. He is in a hermeneutic crisis. It's an interpretive crisis, right? Um, he has a bunch of observations. He could force uh, the the his observations to fit his preconceived ideas. He could totally do that. That would be not only a natural thing to do, that would be a very, like, psychological self-defense thing to do, right? He could do that. Um, he has those preconceptions. We see that he has the preconceptions, but we see him resist simply following his preconceptions. We see him being open to following where his observations lead, even when it leads him to a desperately uncomfortable place. He doesn't throw away his observational scientific mindset. Instead, he uses it. He goes where the evidence takes him, even when, when it, where it takes him is a place which would seem unscientific or in conflict with the things that scientific would, people would tell you. Uh, um, uh, you know, could or could not happen. So anyway, but let's 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 look at another uh, word pattern, and I want to <clears throat> I want to move a little bit faster through these, um, which would be easy because some of them are even familiar passages we've looked at before. <clears throat> but again, this is um, I, I, I bring this forward as an illustration. Again, one of the things which is to me always kind of a giveaway when I'm when I'm trying to be guided by a book to sort of see like you know, what is it interested in and what should I pay attention to? How do I know when I'm paying attention to something which is sort of there in the story compared to just something I happen to be interested in? When you can see 
repeated images coming back again and again. Maybe that idea that the author keeps coming back to again and again is important, right? Maybe it's something that's on their mind for a reason, right? Uh, so here's one example. I could hear a lot of words, often repeated queer words. We looked at them, right? Satan, hell, witch, uh, werewolf, or vampire, right? Okay, so this is our this is our, our, our first reference that we get here. Um, look at how he described... This is Dracula in the mirror scene, right? When Dracula lunges at his chin. Now, read this one carefully. I laid down the razor, turning as I did so half round to look for some sticking plaster. When the Count saw my face, his eyes blazed with a sort of demoniac fury, and he suddenly made a grab at my throat. I drew away, and his hand touched the string of beads which held the crucifix. It made an instant change in him, for the fury passed so quickly that I could hardly believe that it was ever there. Okay, so the first time we see um, the, uh, uh, the, the devil witch thing, right? But again, this is from a, an, an, an objective anthropological sense. So I, you know, he, he hears that, for some reason, they associate something about him with demons, Right, and Satan and hell. Okay, all right, fine. We see that demon hell language now coming up in his own metaphor, right? Um, but, but, but careful here. It's even cooler. What kind of fury does Dracula show? This is a... This is a yes, exactly, Philip. Demoniac, not demonic. Those are different words. Important, important distinction uh, in uh, in, and it tells us a lot about Jonathan's point of view. Exactly, Carita. Demonic is an adjective which means of or relating to demons. Demoniac means a person who is possessed by a demon or many demons, Carita, as you point out. Yes, a demoniac can be used as a, can be used as a noun. It's used this way in the King James, for instance, um, with the Gadarene demoniac, the the dude in the Gospels who has the you know who's like you know uh, uh, we are called legion for we are many, right? That dude is called a, a demoniac in the King James. Demoniac um, also can be used as it is in this way uh, as an adjective. So notice what this implies as he's writing this, right? He's not saying. Dracula was acting like a demon. Notice what he's saying is he's acting like somebody who's being controlled by a demon. See the distinction? He's not yet equating Dracula with a demon. He's still thinking of him as a guy. But he was acting kind of demoniac there. Right? It's, I mean, it's like something came over him. Notice, it's because it, it's the shift that he's pointing to. Here's Dracula being perfectly polite. Right? Good afternoon, he says. Right? And then he sees the blood and he's like... And then he immediately stops. And so, um, Jonathan's like, whoa, a little personality split there, right? Is this guy driving the bus? <laughs> now, he's not, he doesn't seem to be actively asking the question, could my host, in fact, be possessed by a demon, right? He doesn't seem to be going quite that far. It's just a metaphor that he uses to try to convey what it was like, Right? But the metaphor betrays how he's thinking about Dracula. So we're seeing a progression, like, uh, hmm, uh, Satan, hell, yes, isn't that interesting? Right? I should ask the Count about these superstitions. Right? To now, whoa, he kind of acts, it's almost like he's being controlled at times a little bit by a demon. I mean, it's, that, that's kind of like how he's acting, huh? Wow. And then, in the scene with the three women, 
As my eyes opened involuntarily, I saw his strong hand grasp the slender neck of the fair woman, and with giant's power draw it back, the blue eyes transformed with fury, the white teeth champing with rage, and the fair cheeks blazing red with passion. That's the description of the woman, of course, not him. But the Count! Never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit! His eyes were positively blazing. The red light in them was lurid, as if the flames of hellfire blazed behind them. His face was deathly pale, and the lines of it were hard like drawn wires. The thick eyebrows that met over the nose now seemed like a heaving bar of white-hot metal. Now, that's some eyebrows right there, right? Okay, see him coming back to the demon language here, right? But again, notice the shift. Again, by looking at this repeated imagery, we can get another insight into the shifting of Jonathan's perspective. Right? Remember, most of the time, he won't actually say, even to himself, what it is that he's thinking. Right? What conclusions and what are the, what indeed is the scary conclusion that he's coming to? He's pretty he's pretty shy about that, even in his journal. But his imagery betrays how he's thinking. Right? Demoniac first. Now, it's not just that he shifted from demoniac to demonic, right? There's, 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 there's more than that. Never did I imagine such wrath and fury, even to the demons of the pit, right? Um, it goes beyond comparison. He was like a demoniac. To it exceeds even what I had imagined. So it's not just like, man, he was so wrathful and furious. The only thing I can compare him to is a devil. It's worse than that, right? He's not just saying he was as furious as a devil. He's saying, I, 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 not even devils I ever imagined to be as angry as that, right? That the Count's rage exceeds that of demons. That the red, the red light that he can see in his eyes is like, so that hellfire is blazing through the eyes of the Count. Right uh, behind the count's eyes are the flames of hell itself. Right. Okay, we see Jonathan again. Same vocabulary. Very, very different context. Right. We see Jonathan having changed his. We see his ideas about the count developing significantly. Look at this one. This is when he asks to be let out, and then he sees the wolves coming, right? Suddenly it struck me that this might be the moment and means of my doom. I was to be given to the wolves, and at my own instigation. There was a diabolical wickedness in the idea great enough for the Count. I love that line. Think about that one. And and as a last chance, I cried out, Shut the door, I shall wait till morning, and covered my face with my hands to hide my tears of bitter disappointment. With one sweep of his powerful arm, the Count threw the door shut, and the great bolts clanged and echoed through the hall as they shot back into their places. In silence we returned to the library, and after a minute or two I went to my own room. The last I saw of Count Dracula was his kissing his hand to me, with a red light of triumph in his eyes, and with a smile that Judas in hell might be proud of. Yeah, Jennifer, he had thought that he deemed his own doom there, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly, very good. I can see uh I can see you might be new to uh uh to the netmoot, new to our interface here, but you're 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 uh you're not a stranger around here. Um good, good. Um What do you notice? What do you notice? There was a diabolical wickedness in the idea great enough for the Count. I love that. 
Again, you see the progression of ideas. Um, hmm, demons. Interesting. To, oh, it was almost like he was controlled by a demon there. Wow. To, he's like a demon. It's like, it's like are, demon, are demons even as bad as him? Right? To now, he is his own wickedness. The Count's wickedness is the standard by which we're going to evaluate diabolical wickedness. Right? So, you've got wickedness. And then you've got diabolical wickedness. Diabolical, of course, which means devilish. Right? So it's already in the category of diabolical wickedness. But the question is, does the diabolical wickedness in question rise to the level of appropriateness to Count Dracula? Right? It's like he is the standard. By, it's like the Turin scale of evil, Arthur. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, and, uh, and, but, but notice there's still the reference to Judas and hell. Of course, we still get hell imagery, but it's Judas, which is interesting. That is, he's still connects him, although we now have him associated with, you know, demons. He's like now the standard for demons, right? You know, he, he's not only like a demon, again, he's like the, uh, the scale by which demons themselves are measured and their wickedness are measured. Can they possibly measure up to the wickedness of Count Dracula? But, um, but he's still, there's still something human about him, though, right? He's like Judas, in destroying Jonathan, in bringing Jonathan to his doom, he is acting like Judas. He is a betrayer. Of humanity, right? Uh, um, so there's st- he still acknowledges a uh, and good. Yeah, Joyce is thinking about the betrayer of the host guest responsibility um, with that. With that, and 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 Gerald, yes, yeah, certainly Judas is the uh, the standard for um, uh, for betrayal. Um, but, but again, so so he doesn't totally. He do, while he is making him not only devilish, not uh, seeing him as devilish, but super devilish, right? Yet he still does not separate him, does not divorce him from humanity. And that, I think, is an important thing to acknowledge in order to complete the picture that Jonathan has, this sort of association that Jonathan has with Dracula here. One more of these. Then I stopped and looked at the Count. There was a mocking smile on the bloated face, which seemed to drive me mad. This is when he's seeing um, Dracula in his uh, coffin, right? In his earth box. Uh, at, with fresh blood on his face and looking like he's grown young, right? Um, at, and it, it includes my favorite uh, simile of the entire book. Um, I have a favorite simile. Um, where he looks like a filthy leech, exhausted with his repletion. Uh, for some reason, I was, I've been delighted with the phrase, exhausted with his repletion, from the very first time I heard it. Um, I, never, I never get tired of that... Uh, uh, of that phrase, but this is when this is when he got bloated. Um, he got bloated. He's he's gorged with blood, and he's grown younger. His hair, which was white, is now gray. Is now iron gray. Um, he's changed. His physical appearance has changed in this last night before he is um, before he before he's departing. It's literally an overnight change. His hair has gone from white to gray overnight. Remember that later on. Anyway. Um, Okay, then I stopped and looked at the Count. There was a mocking smile on the bloated face, which seemed to drive me mad. This was the being I was helping to transfer to London, where, perhaps for centuries to come, he might, among its teeming millions, satiate his lust for blood and create a new and ever-widening circle of semi-demons to batten on the helpless. The very thought drove me mad. A terrible desire came upon me to rid the world of such a monster. 
There was no lethal weapon at hand, but I seized a shovel, which the workmen had been using to fill the cases, and lifting it high, struck with the edge downward at the hateful face. But as I did so, the head turned, and the eyes fell full upon me with all their blaze of basilisk horror. The sight seemed to paralyze me, and the shovel turned in my hand and glanced from the face, merely making a deep gash above the forehead. The shovel fell from my hand across the box, and as I pulled it away, the flange of the blade caught the edge of the lid, which fell over again, and hid the horrid thing from my sight. The last glimpse I had was of the bloated face, blood-stained and fixed with a grin of malice which would have held its own in the nethermost hell. Good, Erica. Yeah, he's now a being. Uh, not a person, not a man. Yeah, he's a... This is the being, right? Yeah, good. So we see, the, again, the connection with the nethermost hell. Right, again, we see, uh, again, his... Where he places... How he places Dracula, how he understands... Um, how he contextualizes this. Um, he now recognizes the plan, right? Um, he the the basilisk horror, by the way. Um, he's describing the effect on himself, right? The sight seemed to paralyze me, and the shovel turned in my hand. Um, that's why he alludes to basilisks there, because he himself is frozen. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's like he's paralyzed or petrified um, by the uh, by the gaze of the of 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 the count um, when he turns his his hate-filled eyes uh, that are in his hateful face. Um, Okay. Notice still, Jonathan, drawing conclusions, right? And this, of course, is the most horrible conclusion of all. Um, The most painful of the conclusions that he's been confronted with because it affects not just himself, right? Not just his own fate, but recognizing that he, he bought a house for this guy, right? He's helping this guy move in to England. Um, we see him not resisting those conclusions even when the, he talks about um, being driven mad. But he's not being driven mad. We can see him not being driven mad. right? Um, he is, in fact, fully in control of his faculties. But, of course, we also see that final devil image. He can't go any further. Right? Um, this is, uh, this, you know, sort of, it's, it's, he keeps making that comparison, but he's come to the end of that comparison. His, his, his Context for Dracula is at the furthest extreme. One last one. I am. Al- this is the very end of Jonathan's journal. There, at the end of chapter four, I am alone in the castle with those awful women. Fa, Mina is a woman, and there is not in common. They are devils of the pit. I shall not remain alone with them. I shall try to scale the castle wall farther than I have yet attempted. I shall take some of the gold with me, lest I want it later. I may find a way from this dreadful place. And then away for home, away to the quickest and nearest train, away from this cursed spot, from this cursed land, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. At least God's mercy is better than that of these monsters, and the precipice is steep and high. At its foot a man may sleep as a man. Goodbye, all. Mina. Now, they are the devils of the pit. Sounds simple, but again, notice the identification. Notice uh, this is no longer metaphor. It's no longer simile, right? It's identification. They are devils of the pit. So again, we can see still progression in his usage of the language, in his employment of the of of the idea of the term. Um, but this is also important. Remember his own desire, right? 
remember that sense of like there was something familiar about that woman, right? That connection with him um, and his rebellion against that. Mina is a woman and there is not in common, right? Um, he knows what they want. He recognizes that he was being manipulated before and may be, um, may be manipulated again. Um, the devil language is, he's not being simply abusive here. They are devils. I think, again, it's not simplistic in that sense. It's being carefully descriptive. He's distinguishing, right? Um, I am alone in the castle with those awful women, and then he remembers Mina, right? Mina is a woman, and there is not in common. It's like he objects to even calling them women, because by calling them, by putting them in the category women, he's putting them in a category with Mina, because Mina's a woman, right? No, there is nothing in common. There is so little in common between the, the, the female vampires and Mina that he's not even going to call them women. They're not women, they're devils of the pit, right? But again, it's not, it's not just abusive, it's descriptive, right? Um, how, well, because how are they devils of the pit? Why would he call them that? Well, because they bring, um, they bring man through temptation to destruction, right? They're literally going around the castle seeking whom they may devour, Certain similarities, right, with Devils of the Pit. Exactly, Margaret, the, 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 the temptation angle. With the Count, there was never really a temptation angle with Jonathan, exactly. Uh, with the women, much more so, right? Um, and, and it's not just like a, they're women who make me feel uncomfortable, <laughs> right? They're not women, right? Because that's, it's, it, it, he recognizes sort of the, uh, the analogy right? Um, they are to him what they were to the baby, right? Like, they they are no more in the relationship of woman towards him as a man than they were in the relationship of mother towards the baby that they ate, right? Um, it is, it is, it is that far. Again, there is nothing, uh, um, uh, there is nothing, um, in common there. Um, yeah, good. Yeah, and Nancy says the business about sleeping at the foot of the precipice is a little more explicit than his previous hints about his suspicions. Agreed. Um, but notice, he's not um, hes not saying... He's not planning to commit suicide, right? What he's, His attitude here is very far from suicide. He's just recognizing alternatives, right? He makes a final, daring conclusion, right? Um, this is what I can do, and yeah, I will probably die, I'll probably fall to my death by doing this, but that's far from a worst-case scenario right here, right? Um, So again, he's not only desperate, but still fully rational. Um, Philip, excellent observation. Um, Yeah, exactly, Jennifer, he plans to climb, not jump. He recognizes the the possibility, even the likelihood of falling, but he's not going to jump. Um, He's not seeking death. Philip points out the line, the devil and his children. Very interesting, isn't it? He does seem to be calling Dracula's brides his children. Um, he seems to have some sense that they, that like he made them, that, that part of the horror of what he's anticipating is not mere death, right? That's what he's saying. At its foot, that is at the foot of the precipice, a man may sleep as a man. If he is killed by those three women, non-women, he does not think he will 
be a man anymore, right? Um, so Sarah, I, I, Sarah Lagarde is asking you, you know, do I think he's sort of appealing to uh, sort of masculine concepts here, like you know, um, die courageously, steering your own fate, or something like that? I, I, I do think Sarah, he's referring like man versus non-man, man versus monster, um, and and it's the devil and his children line that makes me think that. Um, uh, where the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet. Um, on the one hand, there he's just talking about Satan and other demons. You can you can understand it in that way, um, referring to all demons as Satan's children in some kind of vague metaphorical way. So by saying the devil and his children still walk with earthly feet, you know, again he's saying you know this is the place where demons are are, are still like physically walking around. But there does seem to be an insight, and that last line about as a man does seem to suggest that he has some sense that there is more at stake than just death. He's not just worried that they're going to drink his blood and thereby kill him. They're going to drink his blood and that's going to do something worse to him. And that perhaps he has come to some kind of conclusion about their relationship with him. Their relationship with Dracula, in that sense. right? That maybe he bit them and did something to them. Um, so yeah, it's not clear, Yana, whether, you know, Yana was just asking for clarification on that. I don't think we can take this as like a definite, like he definitely has figured out that they will transform him into a monster, but the implication does seem to be there. I would lean in that way, but he doesn't make it totally explicit. Um, okay. We're just about out of time, but that's okay. Let's do there. I, I'm, I'm almost done. Believe it or not, we've done 18 slides tonight, which you have to admit is pretty impressive, and I only had 22, so we're pretty close, and I'm going to do two more before we go, because my last four slides um, are about chapters 5 and 6, and um, we're going to spend lots of time talking about Mina and Lucy, you know, next week uh, as we move forward, Um, so I I wasn't actually even planning to talk about Mina and Lucy tonight. Um, When the plot, when the story kind of kicks back up in chapter 7, there will be plenty to talk about with Mina and Lucy, and we'll get to it there. But I did want to pause before we get to chapter 7 in this two-chapter interlude, um, chapter 5 and 6, when we just get, like, Mina and Lucy writing back and forth to each other, and, like, Lucy's three proposals, and Dr. Seward's diary about his patients, and, you know, fun conversations with cranky old guys uh, on, you know, in graveyards on clifftops and things like that. Like, why is this, what's this doing? Why is this going on? What on earth is happening here? Um, um, so let's talk about that. And what what I want to do, what, what I want to focus on in these two chapters is I want to look at two minor characters. Make sure we don't overlook these two characters um, before we, we pass on. The, my two characters that I want to focus on are Renfield and Mr. Swales. Uh, Mr. Swales, the, the cranky old guy uh, in, the, in the graveyard. Um, why? Why are they here? Why do we spend basically two chapters talking about and hearing the conversations of Renfield and Mr. Swales? Um, what is their relevance? Exactly. Um, what's accomplished? by spending these chapters with these guys. What patterns do we begin to see in what they say and what gets emphasized here, and how does that fit with the other stuff that we've seen? Um, later on, we'll see more clearly how these things are, 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 are more relevant, but I think we can see some things right away. So let's look at Renfield. From Dr. Seward's diary, of course. R.M. Renfield, ITAT 59, means aged 59. This is significant. Renfield is 59 years old. 
Sanguine temperament, great physical strength, morbidly excitable, periods of gloom ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself, and the disturbing influence, end in a mentally accomplished finish. A possibly dangerous man, probably dangerous if unselfish. In selfish men, caution is as secure an armor for their foes as for themselves. What I think of on this point is, when self is the fixed point, the centripetal force is balanced with the centrifugal. When duty, a cause, etc., is the fixed point, the latter force is paramount, that is, the centrifugal force. And only accident, or a series of accidents, can balance it. Okay. Centripetal force is force that um, goes in towards the center of a circle. Centrifugal force is force which heads outward uh, from, uh, from, from the center. Um, so, of course, what we think of as centrifugal force, you know, like when you spin something around and it goes flying off, is not actually centrifugal force. It's actually you are applying centripetal force towards the center, like when you're swinging something around in your hand, you are pulling it always in and diverting its inertia away. Anyway. Doesn't matter. The point is, centripetal is towards the center, centrifugal is out, fleeing away uh, from uh, uh, from the uh, uh, from from the center. Two things here. First, what we learn about rent. Let's forgetting the centrifugal centripetal stuff for a second. The first half of the paragraph. Um, what do we learn here? Renfield has some fixed idea. What is Renfield's fixed idea? This is a question that's drawn to our attention, right? Okay, so we don't yet know why it's important, why we need to know all this stuff about Renfield, but we know it is. How do we know it's important? How do we know it's important? I I don't mean what is important about it. I mean, how do we know it's important? Exactly, Kimber and Margaret... It was chosen for the book. Remember that the author's epigraph, right? Um, you know that that like it's. It, uh, I'm trying to go let's see. Uh, um, all needless matters have been eliminated. We were told that was the phrase that I couldn't remember. All needless matters have been eliminated, right? So therefore, the fact that we're getting all these details about Renfield, it's important, right? So okay. So therefore. We need to be not asking who cares. We need to be asking why is it that we should care? and Or rather, what are we being asked to care about? Well, what we're being asked to care about is what's up with Renfield? What is his fixed idea? Dr. Seward can't make it out, so what is it? That's one thing, certainly, that we need to take away from this. Um, notice he is uh, um, he is of sanguine temperament. Sanguine, by the way, means generally cheerful. Um, cheerful, positive, pretty upbeat. Uh, the opposite of sanguine is melancholy. Uh, n- well, melancholy, phlegmatic, really. But anyway, whatever. And the point is, um, sanguine is uh, upbeat, cheerful. He's a charming guy, Renfield. Real nice fellow. Um, he's very strong, morbidly excitable, periods of gloom, ending in some fixed idea which I cannot make out. So the fixed idea is connected with his periods of gloom. Okay, all right. I presume that the sanguine temperament itself and the disturbing influence end in a mentally accomplished finish. That is, the idea that he comes to is not... He, he believes 
that Renfield's idea is not a crazy idea. It's not an irrational idea. He has come to a conclusion. It's a mentally accomplished finish. Um, that's important, right? Um, there's a problem he is trying to solve, Renfield is trying to solve, and he thinks he's found a solution. Okay? Um, in other words, his, his fixed idea, it's, it's, not, it's not arbitrary. It's not random. That's anyway what Dr. Seward thinks. Now, the second part, the centripetal and centrifugal stuff. This is a very important point. Um, Jonathan Seward's emphasis is on selfishness, right? Um, he's basically dividing people into two classes here. Which force dominates? Centripetal or centrifugal? Are you first and foremost focused on yourself and thinking of yourself and your own good, or are you first and foremost thinking about other things, such as duty or a cause, something outside yourself that you would be willing to sacrifice yourself for? Which one is it? And he thinks, basically, Renfield would be much more dangerous if he were unselfish. If he had a cause or felt he was doing a duty, this guy would be a menace. But since he's selfish, his selfishness uh, is as secure an armor for his foe as for him, because he doesn't want to get in trouble, right? He doesn't want anything bad to happen to him, so he's careful. And he's cautious, and he's deliberate. Okay? Um, uh, so, and yes, Amber, the idea that he has a sanguine temperament, the sanguine temperament, of course, comes from a, a predominance of the four humors. It's four humor talk. Of the four humors, it means that blood is is dominant. So, there's that, right? Um, okay, so, by the way, as random as this sounds in this paragraph, I think that this, though Seward's, you know, wording is awkward and stilted and science-y, uh, it's, uh, this is one of the great oppositions in the book. Um, and I, I, it's, uh, you know, it's embedded in this sort of side comment on Dr. Seward's case file. But this question of centripetal versus centrifugal, selfish versus unselfish, is, 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 is I, I think, one of the motifs of the entire book. Um, we'll see when we come back to that a whole bunch as we go on. We've seen a glimpse of it already. Remember Dracula's account of his battles, right? Bah! What are peasants without a leader? Right? For he knew that he himself, that he alone could ultimately triumph. Right? Um, we've seen this. Right? Um, anyway. The diagnosis. The thought that has been buzzing about my brain... That's funny, Doctor. You made the, with the funny there, with the flies, right? Okay, anyway. That has been buzzing about my brain lately is complete, and the theory proved. My homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. I shall have to invent a new classification for him, and call him a zoophagous, life-eating maniac. What he desires is to absorb as many lives as he can, and he has laid himself out to achieve it in a cumulative way. He gave many flies to one spider and many spiders to one bird, and then wanted a cat to eat the many birds. What would have been his later steps? It would almost be worthwhile to complete the experiment. It might be done if there were only a sufficient cause. Men sneered at vivisection, and yet look at its results today. Why not advance science in its most difficult and vital aspect, the knowledge of the brain? 
Had I even the secret of one such mind, did I hold the key to the fancy of even one lunatic, I might advance my own branch of science to a pitch compared with which burdened Sanderson's physiology or Ferrier's brain knowledge would be as nothing. If only there were a sufficient cause. I must not think too much of this, or I may be tempted. A good cause might turn the scale with me, for may not I, too, be of an exceptional brain congenitally? Okay. Um, Renfield was trying to puzzle out he had a fixed idea right he had a problem that he was trying to solve and he thinks he came up with a solution um, what what is his solution what's it or rather what's his problem what problem was he trying to solve to what process has he arrived at a mentally accomplished finish? Any ideas? Dr. Seward doesn't seem to fully understand. He gets the basic concept. He's zoophagus. He eats life. He wants to absorb as many lives as he can. Why? Why? What's, uh, what's Renfield worried about? Yes! Exactly! Death! is what he's worried about. Atat 59. Renfield's getting up in years, right? Uh, as Mr. Swales would say, the odd man be wetting his scythe, right? Um, oh, wait, hang on. We'll, we'll come to the wit and wisdom of Mr. Swales. We'll have to save him for next time. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, death. He's getting older, right? And he seems to want to extend or expand his own life. And so he's come up with a solution for this, right? No problem. Great solution. Makes sense. Mentally accomplished. Again, Dr. Seward is right. It's not a random idea, right? He's not just like got some odd, irrational fixation. Um, you know, like somebody who's just, like, terrified of the color blue or something like that, right? No, this is the end of a rational process, right? Um, Amber, what a neat observation. Amber Nelson says, uh, points out how uh, Dr. Seward calls him my homicidal maniac is of a peculiar kind. Uh, and Amber says, what is he, his pet, right? Yeah, um, that's an interesting tone in Dr. Seward, isn't it? Remember Jonathan and the peasants at the beginning, right? There's a similar distance. There's a, a similar kind of smugness. Um, Dr. Seward very much sees himself in relationship... He's on the other side of a fence from Renfield. Now, he has every reason to think that, right? Dr. Uh, you know, Renfield is the, is the lunatic asylum patient, and Dr. Seward is the lunatic asylum keeper, Right, so, you know, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, a, but um, um, there's uh, there's. It should sound familiar to us, right, from Jonathan's experience, and we remember where Jonathan's experience led him, right. We should probably keep that in mind. Um, yes, good, Philip. Thank you. I almost put that passage up there, but I thought I already had enough. Um, but as Philip Barrett reminds us, he says that uh, uh, that 
Dr. Seward records Renfield as arguing quietly that it, the fly, the huge blow fly that he catches and eats right in front of Dr. Seward, that it was very good and very wholesome, that it was life, strong life, and gave life to me, right? He says. So yes, we see him, he's, he's getting more life in this way. And we see him not only reasoning, right, they have life, strong life, and by absorbing their life, I gain life for myself. That's a rational process, right? You might differ with some of the premises, right? Actually, I'm not sure it works that way. Not sure it's actually granting you more life. But again, there you're not calling him irrational. You're just saying that he's mistaken in his premises. It's still a rational conclusion he's coming to, right? A mistaken rational conclusion, but a rational conclusion, right? Um, But notice it's more than that. Mentally accomplished indeed, right? He's figured out a way to maximize the amount of life that he gets, right? He could just eat massive quantities of flies, but way better to do the food chain thing, right? Oh, man, now he's like, a, um, you know, like if he eats like a seven-fly spider, man, you know, it's like you just, you, you do it algebraically. You can easily see how much more life he's getting for himself. So this is fantastic. It's fantastic. What about the second half of this paragraph? Why does Dr. Seward go, what's... What's up with that? What's significant about his digression here? Notice how Dr. Seward segues from his diagnosis of Renfield's condition to discussion of his own temptation. What's the big deal? What's he tempted about? Renfield is radically selfish. In Renfield, as Dr. Seward has already observed, the centripetal force by far dominates, right? And we can see this in what, in fact, his... uh, his mania is, right? His zoophagy. Um, he is trying to take the lives of others, you know, mean and, and uh, uh, you know, verminous things as they are. Well, the birds are cute, but anyway, minor lives, right? But nevertheless, he's going to take them, he's going to absorb them into his own life, right? They, they exist only to serve him. He's going to take and he's going to absorb their lives into himself radically centripetal, right? Radically selfish is his point of view. If Dr. Seward uses Renfield as a test subject, if instead of trying to cure him of his mania, he indulges his mania in order to understand his Renfield's mental processes better, then how is Dr. Seward better than Renfield? Right? He, too, would be acting in that centripetal kind of way. He would, just as Renfield is subjugating the lives of spiders and flies, or subordinating the lives of spiders and flies, subjugating too, I guess, um, spiders and flies and, and sparrows to his own life, right? Um, he's subordinating those. So Dr. Seward would be subordinating Renfield's own life, Renfield's own sanity to his own progress. And exactly, James, he has a cause, right? Um, so we can see both things. That, but mightn't that also make him, Dr. Seward, more dangerous? As here, a good cause might turn the scale with me. He won't do it for selfish purposes. He's tempted, right, to elevate his own science above these other famous scientists of the day, Burden, Sanderson, and Ferrier, right? You can look them up if you want. But uh, but anyway, famous scientists, right? I could compete with them, right? People could be talking about Seward's, you know, brain knowledge, right, instead of Ferrier. That's the centripetal reason. And he resists that temptation. But a cause might turn the scale with me, right? If only there were sufficient cause. Um, 
and he recognizes that as another temptation. Exactly, Amber. I can use him for my own ends. That would be cool for me. Exactly. Um, he, Dr. Seward recognizes the parallel, right? And even that business at the end, for may not I too be of an exceptional brain congenitally. Although he sounds maximally stuffy and stuck up in that moment, perhaps, because of his phrasing, that's actually the most humble thing that he says. Because in saying that, he's recognizing Renfield is of an exceptional brain congenitally, right? There's something up with Renfield's brain, right? Not just that there's something defective in it. He has a good brain, but it's a weird good brain. It's a good brain which has gone bad, and that's why he wants to study it. He recognizes that he has a good brain and that his brain could go bad, right? Um, so... In, fa- in, in saying this, he's actually, you know, remember I was talking about how sort of him seeing this sort of fence between himself and Renfield, right? He's over here and Renfield's over there and, you know, it's like the peasants. In this moment, he does acknowledge Renfield and I could be in the same boat, right? We could be like sharing a, a cell block if I'm not careful about this, right? I could go that way too. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Carrie says, does Seward recognize his own consuming of another person in scientific study as a possible form of madness or of genius? Yes. Both. Both. Just as there's genius in Renfield's plan, right? There's a genius plan. Might not work, <laughs> right? Um, but, um, but you know, uh, there's, uh, there's definitely genius there. Um, okay. We'll come back to Mr. Swales next time. Reread Mr. Swales' speeches. Not only because they're awesome, and by the way, the key to Mr. Sw- to, to reading Mr. Swales' speeches is don't try to understand every word. Don't, don't, like, the last thing you want to do is be looking at, at uh, and be like, what's the difference between a bow ghost and a boggle? Exactly. Don't, don't, don't worry about it. Just, just let it go, man. Just let it go and uh, let his dialectical terms just kind of roll over you and you'll get the gist. Um, and that's, and, and the gist is really all we need uh, from this. I don't understand a whole bunch of his words. Um, I, I don't know if, uh, if any of you, uh, if any of you who are attending or if any of you who listen after the fact are anywhere near Whitby uh, and could actually recognize any of this vernacular, you know, could actually, if, if any of these words mean anything more to you than they do to us, I would, I would, I would love elucidation, but don't worry about it. Um, uh, oh, Tomas, you have a, an annotated version with translations of his speech. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah, no, don't, don't read translations. You gotta just read Mr. Swales. You know, you, you've gotta get into it's. It's the whole spirit of Mr. Swales that you've gotta get into. Um, yeah, Joyce, I did see the halflings. I like the halflings. Anyway, okay, all right. We'll uh, um, we'll 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 start with Mr. Swales next time, and then we'll carry on um, the um, the big uh, the big. The, the 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 big plot you know the, the a plot comes back uh in chapter 7 so we'll uh we'll 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 focus on that next time but we will start with Mr. Swales okay 20 out of 22 yes all right i did well tonight thanks everybody uh really fun class tonight and i look forward to uh look working through the next part with you next week see you next wednesday bye now <laughs>